This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was the weekly Zoomer Squad's first chance to comment since the Ford government unveiled new long-term care legislation. After 3,800 pandemic-related deaths, the government introduced a bill that doubles the maximum fines levied on homes that break the law, increases the power of nursing home inspectors by allowing them to issue compliance orders on the spot, and allows the ministry to put in place a long-term care home supervisor to run a home. For their thoughts on this and the new guidelines for booster shots, Libby talked with Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP. The most important sea change I'm seeing is not even in the specific items, but in the fact that they've moved under uh, Rod Phillips to really starting to deal with concrete, measurable, actionable, viewable uh, actions and outcomes rather than um, abstract statements of good intent. So they're talking about numbers of beds. They're talking about number of hours of care, what year various things are going to be achieved. Um, and I think that there's an awareness that they need to produce uh, concrete outcomes now. The time for uh, statements of uh, you know noble intentions is over. And to me, that's the biggest change of all that I've seen. Uh, Bill, what do you think? I agree with David. There were a number of specifics in the uh, in the uh, communications that CARP had uh, with the ministry, saying these are the kinds of things that need to be done, and they've touched on on all of them. And as David said, uh, we've been getting promises after promises for a year now. And finally, we have not only some uh, specific actions, but also something that can be measured in terms of, of how many how many are done, how it's, how it's accomplished, and what the uh, results are. So uh, overall, uh, we're very happy with the announcement and glad to see they're finally taking some real steps. Peter, one of the things that had me shaking my head, one of the biggest criticisms of the government was that they basically uh, gutted the inspection system after they came in 2018-2019, and this, they're dub doubling the number of inspectors and bringing back regular inspections, and, um, you know, people were complaining about it, so... After complaining about the other, I mean, I had to say that had me scratching my head a bit. Yeah, it's a bit ironic, isn't it? But um, I, I think what they realized was that these money-saving uh, moves really uh, hurt them when when the pandemic struck, and they, there there was no one to, you know, there there was no one to check on these homes to see whether they were doing a good job in infection control or, you know, arming their staff. They did phone inspections. Phone inspections, exactly. Yeah. So um, and and that's all they could do because they there were no inspectors, right? So um, I, I I think this is them admitting that they they messed up that file and they're they're trying to correct it and and you know look 
if this thing, if they're serious about this, and and the fines have teeth, and the inspectors are armed with, um, you know, they they have the power to go in and and actually look at the places without uh, telling them ahead of time. I I think this legislation is really good and and really promising. But you know, um, are they going to are they going to uh, enforce these fines? Are they going to allow inspectors free range? That that remains to be seen. They haven't in the past, so um, that that's a huge, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait to see that. Remember, we did hear a lot of complaints during the height of the pandemic. Not only were they failing to keep infection out, but the residents who were not infected with uh, COVID, uh, the quality of their care was dropping materially. And um, nobody seemed to be able to put the two sides of the equation together. It sounds to me like they're saying there's going to be a regime that makes sure that the health and the rights of the residents with all the components uh, is now going to be the focus of these inspectors. And then if there's an individual complaint, we'll respond to those as well. So it looks like they're trying to tie together a, a lot of components that do relate to overall health and welfare in these homes. And again, uh, the jury's out. If they can make that stick, it will be a very uh, significant change for the better. David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Policy Officer at CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. This week, the Ford government announced its booster shot rollout that followed the recent guidelines from NACI, which Libby discussed with Dr. Susie Hoda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Toronto's University Health Network. I think the should is meant to reflect the uh, greater certainty that you, you would require that third dose if you're over the age of 80. And that's looking at what the data has shown so far, uh, and this is Canadian data as well as international data, where really that's where the evidence of um, some waning immunity and less protection against severe outcomes uh, and also just infection altogether um, has been panning out. So after the age of 80, we are starting to see uh, over time there is waning of, of the immunity from vaccines such that people are get, getting admitted to hospital with breakthrough infections more frequently than, um, you know, if, if they were just recently immunized. Um, as well as there are some deaths as well in that age group. Now, that effect is being seen. It's a gradual effect that is occurring over age brackets. And it is being seen in the 70 to 79-year age group that there is some waning immunity, but it's just not as um, marked. It's not as noticeable as what you see after 80. And so that's why there's a the should versus the may in the recommendation. You well, know, pe- people who are close to 80 are saying, hey, well, is something magical going to happen on my birthday? Right. <laughs> Nothing magical. Like I said, these are these are continuous um, kind of data, and uh, it's hard to really just know on an individual level, um, you know, where, where your risk will sit. It's looking at all the data that we have together amongst uh, people in different age brackets that are divided, you know, somewhat arbitrarily by 10-year groups, groupings, and um, and then over time. So I think the, the message here is as you get older, there is a concept of, we call it immune senescence. Your immune system may not work as well, number one, but also in response to vaccines. But secondly, and importantly, you might um, have less uh, durability and protection from vaccines when you're older. So 
you know, where that lies and from one person to another that your risk starts to go up is not really clear, but that's where the policy has to draw some kind of a line. And this is where they're saying, you know, we strongly believe that at the 80 plus after six months have elapsed from your second dose, you should get your booster dose. But at the 70 to 70 age mark, it looks like that as well. It's just less certain. As far as I know, most of the evidence comes from Israel and and they were five months uh, for people over 60. Yeah, some jurisdictions have used slightly different timelines. Five months is what, you know, most commonly comes out from the Israel experience. The six months really came from a couple of places. Number one, the studies that were kind of designed to evaluate the booster doses and how well they would work and how safe they are use six months. That was the timeline that was chosen to evaluate. So that's where when this gets fully reviewed and authorized by Health Canada as a booster um, kind of dose, and I should say that caveat, although NASI's put these recommendations out, um, Pfizer and Moderna have, have submitted data and um, a request to Health Canada for approval for this use of the vaccine as a booster. And that's still, we're still waiting for that to come out. But the data they've submitted there use a six-month interval. So that's really the, the main kind of gist of it, why uh, six months is being recommended, is that's what we have the most sort of empiric evidence to look towards. Anything else you'd like to leave us with on this? You know, I think that uh, it, it's interesting, and I think a lot of people are just waiting anxiously at the edge of their seats about all these new um, indications coming forward with the boosters. Um It's going to be a rapidly changing uh, landscape, and I I hope that people are able to keep up with the information uh, and get out there as soon as you are eligible. There's so much going on in terms of prioritization, you know, getting uh, the review of the 5 to 11 age groups and and making sure that that happens as well. I I just think that um, it's important to keep on top of who's being recommended because those are the areas where we're most vulnerable, and we just really want to, you know, increase the protection in those groups. Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik. Coming up after the break, three years later, the Ford Conservatives now like the idea of a $15 an hour minimum wage. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If the Ontario legislature approves, then the minimum wage will rise to $15 an hour as of January 1st. The Wynn government was set to do this back in January of 2019, but the PCs cancelled it, saying it would have been a lot for businesses to absorb. So, would an increase now be enough to win over workers ahead of the June election? Or too little too late? And will it help solve our serious labor shortage? Libby spoke with the weekly strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, former Ontario Finance Minister, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. We actually budgeted the minimum wage increase into our uh, budget for this year, and it's going to cost us $30,000 uh, for to uh, assume this wage increase. Um, it won't be as bad as the last one because the last one had a ripple effect uh, throughout the organization that this one, because it's not as much, isn't going to have. Um, but there's no question it's a, a particularly um, interesting time in the in our recovery uh, to have this minimum wage increase. And uh, but I, I do think that the 
that increase combined with the ending of the government support programs that were implemented during COVID will help return at least some part-time people into the job force. Um, but it will have an impact on business, no question. And it's a very difficult time because we do have this rising inflation in certain areas, but we have uh, no, but we also have not a lot of growth in our, in our domestic products. So we've got this strange situation and um, it is an interesting time to be raising the minimum wage, I will say. Charles, you used to be finance minister. What do you make of it? Some of the supports are coming down. On the other hand, it is only 65 cents an hour. Uh, and um, you're, there's a shortage of labor. Yeah, you know, minimum wage at $15 is not... It was, Charles, when it was canceled in 2019, they also canceled sick days. And they, and they cited uh, how this would impact negatively with businesses. But studies have shown that with greater economic prosperity, you know, by sharing wealth, it propagates wealth, spending spurs some economic growth. The problem we're having now is that inflation is high, and it is out of whack. And this is going to be pegged to inflation thereafter, as it was when we instituted it. We actually instituted uh, uh, minimum wage increases about 10 times over the last 11 years. Um, but it is pegged against inflation, and that's what it should be. So the businesses, like, um, you know, what Karen and Havis to deal with can then budget effectively and accommodate as they go forward. And that's what should be happening all along. John, uh, Premier Ford made the announcement behind a sign that said, working for workers. Uh, and obviously, they are trying to court that segment. Uh, is that believable? Well, I think it is. I think if you know, if you followed um, Premier Ford's career, not only with uh, not only as us, the premier, but also when he was a councillor, um, there's no question that he's always fashioned himself to be the champion of the little guy, uh, both he and his late brother uh, when they were in municipal politics. And, and it speaks to the fact that they've always had sort of this, this amazing ability to kind of reach out to, to all voters, but especially those that have maybe been dis- disenfranchised or, or I've never voted in the past. And, and he really has played up to that over the last little while. So this is a narrative, I think, that is in keeping with who he really is. Um, and uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. So there, you know, this is just a yet another example of a policy that the Premier has put in place that speaks to working for workers uh, over the course of the last little while. And, you know, maybe the Premier Ford has never been against raising minimum wage. He's always he's only been against raising it in, in a way that that puts businesses in a disadvantage and and having it be increased by 65 cents versus you know, in the past, where, where the Liberal government under under uh, Kathleen Wynne and, and Charles, who, who was a phenomenal finance minister, knew that the challenge is if you if you raise minimum wage too much, it does put businesses at disadvantage. And I remember at the time, I think I was the chair of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce board when this was going on, and, and the businesses were supportive of a minimum wage, but they were not supportive of the leap to get there because it did put them on, on a disadvantage. So, you know, good and smart business leaders like Karen and others who budgeted for it um, were able to be prepared for this kind of a minimum wage, which obviously helps, especially, as Karen said, in a time like this when CERB payments are being phased out, this is an opportunity for businesses to attract workers back to work. So I think it's good news. Fightback's weekly strategy panel, John Capobianco, Charles Souza, and Karen Stintz. Workers are welcoming the proposed wage hike, and it may help alleviate the labor shortage, but what about small businesses, many of whom are struggling because of the pandemic? Libby reached out to Julie Kwasinski of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. 
we have a surprise, unexpected decision from this government that you wouldn't expect. There was no consultation, and clearly this government looks like it's lost its way with small business. I mean, we're looking at this coming at the worst possible time for small firms, Libby. Small businesses are struggling right now. Today, only 37% of them are at normal revenues. 18% are actively considering bankruptcy, and many are operating at a loss every single day that they're open. And if that's not bad enough for a small business, the average COVID-19 related debt is a whopping 190000 and small business owners are telling us it will take them two or more years to get out of that debt. So if you fast forward to January, when this minimum wage increase will actually take effect, you're looking at the perfect storm. You already have a number of cost pressures. Commercial insurance rates are rocketing. The largest Canada pension plan rise to date under the federal government CPP increase plan will take effect at the same time. And there's something a lot of people may not be aware of. We've had commercial eviction protection in this province, and that will lapse in mid-January. So at that point, landlords could be asking tenants to immediately make up for months and months of unpaid rent. And so just a minute, but um, atrocious, Libby. It's 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 also January is the time when when things get very quiet after what's hopefully a good Christmas season. Absolutely. And if we look back at what happened last year, Libby, I'm sure you'll recall that that's when the Ontario government basically funneled shoppers to big box stores and retailers were restricted to curbside pickup and delivery. So once again, I mean, we're going into a holiday season. We're still sensing that there's a lack of consumer confidence to get out there and shop after people have been told for months to stay at home. So it remains to be seen how successful this holiday season is. And as you said yourself, January's a slow month, and even February and March tend to be slow months too. But even like, let's look at restaurants. Yeah, I so, wanted to get there. So um, their increase, I mean, at least for other businesses, uh, the increase is 65 cents an hour, but it's more for restaurants. Oh, absolutely. So now what's happening, Libby, is the liquor server's wage is being eliminated, so it will be at par with the general minimum wage. So we're looking at only 60 days notice during a pandemic for a restaurant of a 20% increase of $2.45 per hour to the liquor server's wage. So if you're already struggling, how are you supposed to find the money to cover this wage increase. And what that means, Libby, is for some businesses, they will have to make very difficult decisions. Everything from, should I even operate? Should I shut down? Should I stop hiring and maybe have less people do the jobs that I currently have? Reduce hours for current employees? Delay investments in my business, hire fewer young or inexperienced workers, or increase prices? Because if you don't have the money to pay for this, you've got to find a way to do it because the government's not offering anything. Julie Kwasinski of Canadian Federation of Independent Business. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of the best calls with many wanting to weigh in on the proposed raise to the minimum wage like Rhonda in Kitchener. We're in such a mess before the COVID. The wages and everything's not balancing out. An ordinary Canadian cannot afford a house. And unless you're with a group of people, you can't afford nothing. And seniors, I mean, they're behind. We're all behind. We've been behind for more years than I can count because I'm hitting the senior thing. I mean, we don't get a raise in our pensions every five or ten years. I challenge the government, all government, without their perks to live on 15 bucks an hour. I mean, nothing is fair anymore. I don't know where they get their, their numbers from, but they're not working for the ordinary Canadian or the seniors. We're way behind before this, covid Before everything, we needed a raise like 15 years ago. Doreen in Kingston worries about who will be hurt by a higher minimum wage. We complain about the groceries going up. And part of that is because of the paying employees. And now the the minimum wage, she's saying people can't live on that. Well, if the minimum wage keeps going up, there's not going to be any small businesses like um, the uh, fast food places because their costs are going up. Uh, for food and supplies, and I think they might want to look at or read up on it's not the big corporations that they're getting the wages from. It's the small business person. Tony in Pefferlaw also sympathizes with small business. On the left hand and the right hand don't know what they're doing. You end up getting a dirty face on one side and a clean on the other because Ford doesn't know about restaurant small business. I was in the restaurant business now for 35 years. And these guys got a lot of years to come before they even look or see a profit. And then he's compounding that on top. It's like having a mule who's got excess on his back. And then you're throwing in another 100 pounds, not 10 pounds, on top of his back and saying, okay, deal with it. Man, it, it, I feel bad now. I feel bad for these small businesses. It's, and I know I've been there. I know back, you know, and I've seen it happen. And all that's going to happen here now is either they're going to close up shop you know, bad timing for that, good timing for him because voting time, and that's why he threw that bone out there for people, right? So yeah. uh, uh, it's too bad. I mean, I, when I see this, I laugh and I go, what a joke. What a joke. This oh. is ridiculous. But the time change and Remembrance Day flag controversy is what most wanted to talk about, like Norm in Aurelia. You know, we've always served our military people that fell overseas during the First Second World War. I was in the armed forces myself. I wore a United Nations TAM for a while. I served in Germany as well, Lord. And, uh, you know, I think our governments need to look at one thing. If they served in our military, they would know what the respect was of our fallen dead. But our prime minister and his father never served overseas. I heard many stories about how his father refused to go. And, you know, money talks in, in situations like that, but I think we need to lower, open our, put our flag up and put our flag down. I cannot see First Nations leaders saying that they would not respect their dead, and they will lost a lot of people as well, and I served with some of the First Nations people, and they respected what we did. 
As for the time change, Daryl in Toronto prefers the status quo. We should leave things the way they are with the two switches a year. I, I appreciate the extra light during the summer very much. To me, the idea of the, the, you know, the light at night. I mean, the other alternative is why don't we just have one clock time for the whole world and function from there. In the spring, when we change the clocks, why not move family day or whatever the holiday is to the Monday that we change the clocks and then people have the weekend to adjust to, you know, a mere hour's difference. Jan in Guelph shared this suggestion. How about changing it to half an hour? <laughs> this was discussed with some friends of mine last year and me, and we all thought if it was just half an hour, it would, you know, just make that difference in the morning between the dark time. It would start getting lighter sooner. Do you know well, what I'm saying? Well, and uh, yeah. maybe that would be the answer. Just half an hour, move it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who says, after Remembrance Day, Canadian flags should be raised and remain up. My grandfather was in the war, in the First World War. He's buried in Prospect Cemetery. They always told us there was young people, 17 and 18, went to war. They never came back. How do their families feel about all this? I say we should wear the flag for the 11th and then raise it again as we should. And we should never forget the people of the war because they're the ones that helped us. If, not, if they didn't fight for us, we wouldn't be here now. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, call us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime, 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.